So good evening, everyone. It's kind of one of those cold nights, huh? You all look really cute all bundled up. <laughs> Somehow the wind just gets into the, the building, you know. The boiler is on. I just checked with a maintenance person, so the notes have been received and just checked on, so... So here we are, just trying to stay warm. Hmm. I wanted to um, read a very short poem that really inspired the talk. It's really, the whole talk is based on this. And it's the very famous poem by Nyoshil Ken Rinpoche, who's a great Tibetan yogi. It's really an amazing teacher, and and his poem, it's been, you know, there's been a YouTube video with it and, you know, the poem in it now, and it's really popular. So it's called The Rest in Natural Great Peace. So he writes, Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless, by karma and neurotic thoughts, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves and the infinite ocean of samsara. Rest in natural great peace. So I, this, something about this poem really touches me. I don't know if it's the, the part that says rest in the natural great peace or... I can just see myself and others, you know, we sort of beaten helpless, right? We feel like that at times by neurotic thoughts, by our karma. It just feels like it's so difficult at times. And then he talks about the infinite ocean of samsara. And we keep, you know, talking about samsara. I talk about it a lot. And I was thinking about the Buddha's awakening. And they say that on his night of enlightenment, he got enlightened in three stages throughout the night. There was a first stage, a second stage, and apparently a third stage. And during one of the stages, he understood and saw clearly a 10,000 world system. He looked and saw this system of beings being born again and again. And he saw that actions were the root of this, you know, being, we were, take birth again and again. And he saw that there was really no beginning and no ending to it. And he saw beings in every possible form of life, from animals to great, glorious-looking gods to beings suffering in the lowest hells of uh, experiencing that and beings described in hungry ghost states, all kinds of shapes and forms, some bodies made of light, some undergoing a lot of pain and misery, some more pleasant. Then there's the whole realm of the earth. Earthlings, you could say, are experiences. So there's six realms. 
And he came to understand that in this process, this kind of wandering that happens, we take birth again and again, not knowing a way out, not knowing a path, not even really understanding what is this experience or how to relate to the experience. So we know by now that the cause of is this karma, our desires, our when we act in ways that are unconscious, we sort of recreate an effect, and then that effect plays itself out again and again. Right? And we've wandered so long, apparently we forgot that maybe there was a time where it wasn't like this. Right? So we, we go, and they say that the samsaric existence with these realms is ruled by yama. And I think around the center there's these pictures of Yama, and you'll see a circle with these six realms of existence, the human realms and the low realms and the high realms. And then the Lord of Death is almost like he's biting it, like, yeah, I rule this. This is where I, you know, like, you belong to me. It's kind of very shamanic, even kind of scary. Like, what is that? A little bit like a monster kind of. So I was thinking about this, you know, this kind of, even in our human life, so let's just think about this life, because some people, they might think, oh, wow, that's way too much. I can't think about a billion lives, you know. We can't remember that. I feel like sometimes that's an act of compassion, like just dealing with this is enough, right? If we had to think about the things we did wrong in a billion other lives, you know, how much guilt we would have or whatever, you know, sort of. We're sort of unconscious to that, you know. And you don't even have to believe in that. That's not really what I'm pointing to in this talk. I just wanted to kind of put the frame out there of sort of the vastness of this whole path. In this life, I... I remember being very young, and because just the way things were when I grew up, I grew up very quickly, and I had a lot of responsibility, and I went through a lot of uh, experiences, and so at a young age, I felt very tired by life. There was a, there was a kind of fatigue with the whole thing, like, oh, I keep going, and there just seems to be one problem one struggle or difficulty after another. And I remember feeling this profound weariness. Like, oh, I don't know, this is so hard. And what's the purpose? That was often a question. What is the meaning of this? I kept asking, that was my primary question as I talked about last week. I would ask people, what's the meaning of all this? What, what, why are we doing this? What is, what's the end? Like, is this going to, you know, do we go somewhere else? What's going to happen? You know, I had a lot of questions about this process. It was like I was always stepping back and trying to understand something. And then there would be these times where I would feel really lost. Have you had that experience before? Where you genuinely don't know what to do? If you haven't had this experience, you will. 
right, where you genuinely, you can't figure it out. Should I go this way? Should I go that way? It's almost like everything just seems kind of blank. We don't know how to live or what to do. And what's interesting about samsara is I started to discover when I was very young that there was a circular pattern to things. That it was like things were rising again and again, you know, they would pass only to arise again. Have you discovered that? It's like, oh, this again? Like, I just had this yesterday. You know, I just had this thought or this whole experience. There seems to be this the circular way that things are revolving. And I always use that analogy of life being school because in school, if you flunk something, you have to take it again. I was like, oh, sorry, okay, got to sign up again. And then you go through the whole thing again. And if you don't pass, you could do it again and again. And so I started to feel like, haven't I done this before? You know, we've gone through these things. So I want to read uh, this uh, little story by Portia Nelson. It's called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. Some of you may have heard it. So chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. I walk down the same street. This is chapter four now. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5, I walk down another street. This is good. That's kind of the evolution, I think, of an awakening, (laughs) right, on some level. But you see the repetitive nature. It's like, okay, we are again walking down the street. We're presented with a challenge. Didn't I already have this challenge? This is interesting. You know, that that kind of cycle of things, I find that very interesting. So here we are in this life, and what's so interesting is we're presented with so many different options of paths to follow. There's so many influences. And I think that's what's scary about leaving retreat, is that we doubt that we'll be able to follow the path in some way. We're like, oh no. Right, there becomes this fear. I remember when I would be leaving a retreat, I'd be gripped with fear, like, oh no, I'm going back. Right? Can I remember? Will I be mindful? And it's, it's real. The Buddha also, when he talked about samsara, which this wandering on, he once asked his monks, which do you think is greater, the water in the oceans 
or the tears you've shed while wandering on? His answer, the tears. So this is interesting. So, we, so here we are, we're in this cycle. If we, we sort of look at it. The Dalai Lama, at a teaching a couple years ago, he proclaimed that we were in the desire realm of the short-lived human cycle. <laughs> Something like that. I was like, wow, really? That was interesting. You know, just to sort of place ourselves on a map. And, um, you know, we might have been here many times. And I think the idea is that when we're lost or in a cycle of samsara, I want to talk about this idea of taking refuge tonight. This teaching or this idea of taking refuge it didn't really set in for me deeply until I was on retreat a few years ago when I was in the cabin. Now, I had taken refuge many times. I had taken refuge with many teachers, great teachers, even masters. I chanted the three refuges. You know how you do is like, get the refuges out, and then we all go, right? But in that moment, are we really kind of understanding what that means? Sometimes I felt that there was a very religious Thing. So I was like, I don't want to get too religious now. You know, I don't know. This is, you know, it felt, it felt, I didn't connect to it as much. And then at times this wave of devotion would come up and I would, I would get it. I'd go, oh, I know what we mean by taking refuge. But I want to talk about it from very different ways tonight, a much broader view of what does it mean to take refuge. So if I think about the ocean of samsara, and what's interesting is I see in my own mind a lot of visuals of ocean. I have dreams of the ocean, and it's just a lot of that that idea of ocean appeals to me because I see it so much in my inner experience. So you could imagine there's 7 billion people on the planet. Imagine them all in the ocean. Right, and everybody's swimming. And if we think about a refuge, we think about sort of the island, right? So we're shipwrecked, we're floating in the water, and then suddenly we see this island and we start paddling, like, oh my gosh, we're saved, right? We get to the dry land, maybe there's some coconuts and stuff, and fish, right? Like, we could survive here, right? There's an island, oh my goodness. And if you imagine seven billion people all in the ocean together, but they're not seeing an island, right? So they're just swimming, they're dog paddling. And maybe the things that they're grasping for are not, they're not lasting. Maybe they find pieces of log and they can hold on to that for a while and then it disappears, right? There's no lasting refuge. It's like everybody's looking but is unable to be seen. Like, where, where is lasting refuge? If everything is inherently has some dissatisfaction, is impermanent, there is no self, what do we do? Has anyone thought about that? Like, oh, no. Well, what? <laughs> I think it's good to have that, well, now what do I do moment, right? It's like, are we really hearing the Dharma? Sometimes I wonder if we are, because it's pretty radical on, on some level. It's like everything we think is upside down. Like, how is this possible? What? 
So here we are in the ocean, and we, for some beings, they can find their way to the island. They can find a refuge. And this is the power of what the Buddha is saying, that there is a true refuge, there is a place, that all is not lost. And I think that was what was important when I was young at my first retreat, that I had felt so lost, like, there is nothing here. And then hearing this Dharma talk about Buddha nature was like, oh, something reminded me, oh, there is a refuge. Oh, all is not lost. Like, I felt like I had found some ground. Right? I was still paddling, but it was easier. Like, oh, I'm making my way to this, this place. So as we talk about it, I want to talk about it in the broadest view. As we think about taking refuge in the Buddha, and then we take refuge in the Dharma and the refuge in the Sangha. This is often referred to as the triple gem. So if you think of a gem, you think of something very valuable. If we had a big gem in our hand, we'd be, oh my goodness, right? We'd be taking good care of that. I think what happened in my cabin retreat was that I realized the true depth of refuge when I realized a certain depth of samsara. And I dubbed that retreat my samsara retreat. You know, each retreat has a little flavor. You know, you might go home and you might, oh, that was the self-love retreat or the body retreat or the letting go retreat. Or, you know, we have this little like, yeah, that's where I learned that. Yeah, or a piece of that or something. So I named that retreat my samsara retreat. And while I was on retreat, uh, and I was in the cabin, and also before I went to the cabin, I was doing a Tibetan practice, a prostration practice. So over the course of a few months, I did 30,000 prostrations. And with each prostration, it's really beautiful. It's kind of like a sun salutation. Your hands go up. And you take refuge every time your forehead touches the ground. You take refuge again and again. You say a little refuge prayer. And at first I was doing it kind of like, okay, counting. Yes, okay, I have to hurry up. I have to get to 30,000 really quick. May I take refuge in Buddha, take refuge in Dharma, take refuge in Sangha. I was kind of doing that, you know. Sometimes we practice like that. We're really hurried. People do that with meta. They think, how many phrases I can say. It's like, I won, right? You know, that kind of thing. And then the suffering started setting in. It was so great, right? The tears, and I was going through so much that suddenly I started taking refuge slower and slower every day. You know, I was like feeling all this sorrow and all this fear and all this loneliness. And I was seeing just how much I'd been wandering in my life. You know, there's like this wandering spirit, looking, always looking for something. You know, always looking. And I started to see that all beings are like that, you know, this kind of energy of that. And so I really started taking refuge then. The suffering became so great that all I could do was take refuge. Right? I started to touch my forehead on the ground. I had this little welt right here on my forehead. I kept touching. It was a wood floor, and every time I would bow, it would touch. 
touch. And the more insight that developed over the course of that retreat, it was so intense, the more I would take refuge. Like, oh my God, there's nothing to do but take refuge. You know, it became like an act of pure devotion and I would cry and take refuge again. I would see something else about impermanence, right? See an aspect of the hello, goodbye, right? And what could I do? I would take refuge again, right? Like, oh my God, it's all changing. What could I do? Take refuge. Oh, there's so much dukkha. Oh, take refuge, right? Everything's dissolving. Take refuge. It was this really beautiful experience in that. So I became interested in talking about it more. So what do we mean by that, this idea of taking refuge in the Buddha? You know, before that, when the teachings were first being expounded, there were no statues, and there was no religion. It was just called the way. I, I love that, just so simple, before everything gets complicated. It's like, this is just the way. The way what? The way to the end of suffering. Do you want to follow the way? Come follow the way. Right? So simple. So I always think of the images of Buddha or any images of Tara or Kuan Yin. They're just like looking in a mirror. I think that's the highest way that we could hold it. Buddha means awakened one. And somehow it's just reminding us of who we are. Like our nature, our true nature. I think one of the parts about coming to retreat is we discover these hidden gems inside. It's like the jewel in the lotus. We discover these beautiful parts. It's not always awful. It's not always bad news. Right? We discover our compassion, our generosity. I think one of the things that I learned on my first retreat was that, oh, I have some good qualities. I forgot about them. You know, it's like every, everybody has beauty. Everybody has Buddha nature. They all have the potential to become awake. It's in them. It's sort of, I always say, it's, uh, it's in our DNA. You know, the map is in, the, in our DNA. So there was this book um, I read about maybe a long time ago. I was on a retreat. And I read this book. And I, it was given to me. Or, and I didn't know what it was about. It was called The Camel Knows the Way. And... I picked it up. I thought, this isn't really a Dharma book. I wonder what was, you know, oh, okay, I'll, I opened it. And it really surprised me because it was a book about this English woman who had a very, very profound connection with Mother Teresa. They were really good friends. And they wrote letters. They visited. She was like a, a very close student of Mother Teresa. And the whole book becomes this great journey of their relationship. And she was also a Dharma practitioner. And um, all the teachings that Mother Teresa would give her about selflessness and compassion and faith. A lot about faith. And during this one part of the book, she went on this pilgrimage in the desert. And she had 
paid for a guy to take her across this really long part of the desert on a camel. So they were on these camels. And they got up in the morning, and they were, they were going to head into another town. It was a really long walk. And after the sun rose, her guide, it was just her and him, he hit the camel on the butt, the back, and he smacked it. And he was like, OK, off you go. And he turned around to go the other direction. And she was alone in the desert. And she was like, wait. You have to help me. You, you, I, I paid for you to take me you know, to the town. He goes, oh, don't worry. The camel knows the way. And then he just left. She was kind of screaming, you know, like, what? what? <laughs> the camel knows the way. What do you mean the camel knows the way, right? <laughs> so you could imagine for 15 hours what kind of mind states she went through. <laughs> I'm going to die out here till I can't believe, you know, just everything. Finally, sure enough, out of nowhere, in the late hours of the night, the camel slowly walks into the exact point, right? The little town where they're meeting, and they welcomed her. So I liked that story a lot because I feel like our heart knows the way. I think that's the biggest thing that's going to be the gift for you when, when you leave retreat, is to remember that your heart knows the way, that there's something imprinted already there that knows how to be free and knows the truth. It's already radiant. There's a place in everyone that's not broken. That's not crazy, that is profoundly awake. And when we take refuge in Buddha, we take refuge in that. Even if we can't see it yet, that's why in some way it's a prayer. It's like a faith prayer. Like I take refuge in my highest awake self that is there. The part that's already free, I started to bow to that when I was in the cabin, bowing, prostrating to that. And then what's beautiful about that is that we can also take refuge in all the beings, all the Buddhas who have ever awakened. Right? We see them. We see, we see the potential in them. They're just reflecting us. Right? This isn't so much of a, like, a deity worship religion. This is you can do it kind of religion, <laughs> or you can do it philosophy, right? You know, we're not just praying. We're bowing to like, the truth in ourselves. We're like, yes, I take refuge in that, that part of me. So it's very tender in some way. I find this refuge prayer, this refuge practice to be really devotional. And then we also take refuge in the Dharma. And the Dharma is so vast, you know, it's like all the maps that these great beings have left behind. I almost feel like sometimes it's like archaeology or something. This great master says that, like we look at their biographies and this and link them all together, you know, like, 
wow, here's the terrain. You know, there's a story of a magic city. And um, there's this place, there's this road to this magic city. And, then, and within the city limits is all this beauty, all this love, freedom, right? No poverty, no, you know, everything, no wars, right? Kindness, compassion, wisdom. And there's this path to get there. But what happens is sometimes the path becomes obscured. IMS staff in the spring, they'll have to go and clear the path through the forest again. It will be completely obscured, right? And even every few years, they have to remark the trees. Like, okay, everybody, here's the path, right? Stay on the path already. And I feel like the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas, what they do is when the path has been completely covered, they come through again. They find it. And they do the hard work of clearing it. And there could be a lot. right? They clear it. They clear it. They clear it. And it could be through you know, a path that has highs and lows and valleys and peaks and through water and over different terrain. And they clear it. And then they say, everybody, there's the path. Go left. <laughs> Right? It's kind of like the island, swim that way, right? If you can hear it, if you're paying attention, you know, I kind of feel like that's the job. And then along the path, when we get tired, I feel like there's these beings all along the way that's like, come on. You know, if you ever ran a marathon and there's people holding Gatorade and going, you can do it, mile five, right? Mile 10. I've never run a marathon, by the way, but I cheered someone on, so I, I really... <laughs> it was like, mile 25 was really hard, right? It's like 26 miles as an average marathon, right? 26, 27. The last two people are kind of looking really broken down, right? Like, come on, get the water, you can do it, right? And then that energy carries them, right? They're like, okay, I'm almost there. So that's kind of this taking refuge as we take refuge in the Dharma and we take refuge in the Sangha because that's what our Sangha does. We remember the Dharma in those moments where we can't find the path anymore. We're like, what's going on? Right? We remember. So we study, we also learn to take refuge in the present moment. I think that's also been a huge awakening, and some of you have been reporting that. Right? Wow, I think I've understood now how powerful the present moment is. Right? And this teaching is going out a lot, you know, this present moment. I want to read you a story. It's by Jay Dixit. A friend was walking in the desert when he found the telephone to God. The setting was Burning Man, an electronic arts and music festival for which 50,000 people descend on Black Rock City, Nevada for eight days of radical self-expression. A phone booth in the middle of the desert with a sign that said, Talk to God was a surreal sight, even at Burning Man. 
The idea was that you picked up the phone and God or someone claiming to be God would be at the other end to ease your pain and suffering. So when God came on the line asking how he could help, my friend was ready. How can I live more in the moment, he asked. Too often he felt the beautiful moments of his life were drowned out by the madness and craziness of his mind. What could he do to hush the negativity, the constant buzzing? Breathe, replied a soothing male voice. My friend flinched at the tired New Age mantra and then reminded himself to keep an open mind. When God talks, you listen. Whenever you feel anxious about your future or your path, just breathe, continued God. Try it with me a few times right now. (laughs) Breathe in, breathe out. (laughs) And despite himself, my friend finally began to relax. This particular person went on to do a Vipassana retreat. So this kind of funny in a way, I wonder who's on the phone teaching all these people how to meditate. Basically, that's what he's doing. Like, how's that phone set up? Some some great bodhisattva, because imagine out of 50,000 people, some in very altered states, you could probably get a lot of calls. (laughs) That's an act of compassion right there, teaching everyone, calm down, just breathe, whenever you get freaked out. So this is coming to, you know, all types of situations, right? People teaching one another this present moment awareness, the Dharma is flourishing in a way. It's going out wider and wider circles. So we also take refuge in the truth of life. And the Dharma is so vast. The teachings, think about all the teachings that have been given out, the ten paramis, the seven factors of enlightenment, the four noble truths, teachings on everything, compassion and love, justice. All this is the Dharma. We take refuge in that. We take refuge in the warm heart. We take refuge in the way things are. We bow to that. After the meditation, we all bow like that, right? I always think we're bowing to however that meditation was. Happy, sad, bored. It's like, yes, and I still bow to the way things are in that moment. So when we, when we get ready to go home, we take refuge in our own heart and mind, our, our metta, our compassion. There's nothing to do, really. I think a lot of the fear becomes like, what am I going to do? Right? What do I do now? <laughs> Practice love. Practice compassion. Be a Buddha. Right? We take this out into the world. We take refuge in that, like, ah, oh, these teachings. Another story that I like. Roberto Di Vincenzo. The famous Argentine golfer once won a tournament, and after receiving the check and smiling for the cameras, he went to the clubhouse and prepared to leave. Sometime later, 
he walked alone to his car in the parking lot and was approached by a young woman. She congratulated him on his great victory and then told him that her child was seriously ill and near death. Devenzo was touched by her story, took out a pen, and endorsed his winning check for payment to the woman. Make some good days for the baby, he said, as he pressed the check into her hands. The next week, he was having lunch in a country club when a PGA official came to his table. Some of the guys in the parking lot last week told me you met a young woman there after you won the tournament. Devenzo nodded, yes. Well, said the officials, I have some news for you. She's a phony. She's not married. She has no sick baby. She fleeced you, my friend. You mean there's no baby who is dying, said DiVincenzo? That's right. Well, that's the best news I've heard all week. So I, I like that story because money's gone. You might as well focus on what's good in the situation. So we take refuge in that. We take refuge in our capacity to meet the moment. Right? We've been doing it here. Right? Moment after moment. And then we take refuge finally in the Sangha. I think this has been an area that has been the most inspiring for me and I think the most important in some way on the path. It's important to reflect who is in your inner circle because you'll be influenced by that, right? That's one aspect of Sangha. And I'm really lucky in my life now because I have a beautiful inner circle of women who are just really committed to the path, really beautiful, really caring, dedicated, right? Awakening, inspiring one another to awaken. So we have our inner circle and then we have our outer circles. So our outer circles, you know, if you look at this hall right here, Sangha built this. Sangha built the new ramp for wheelchairs out front. Sangha built the new wing in the, where the old cat skills used to be, right? Sangha is the awakening beloved community. That's what Dr. King used to say, the beloved community. And I don't know if this is true, but I, I hear this a lot that they say the new Buddha is going to be the community. I don't know who, who started saying that. The future Buddha is the, the community itself, the Sangha. Right? I like that. Think about it in that way. But we take refuge in all the beings who have walked the path, who have discovered the path and got all the way to the end. The Sangha is all the people along the way holding the Gatorade, you know, or water bottles or towels. You know, there, there are compadres, friends on the path. Right? They're the people sitting in this room, if you look around. You would never have done this alone, this retreat. Right? We need this whole group. We need all the staff that work in the office, all the teachers and the cooks. We all come together because we all care. We all have the same idea, like this is a wholesome thing to do. Right? That's Sangha. 
and then all the enlightened beings that we can really take refuge in. All those who have completed the goal, have done what was needed to be done, as they say. So there's a way in which that we can pray and we can ask for help. I I don't know. Sometimes I feel a little weird saying that in certain groups. But part of my practice is to, when I don't know what to do or I feel a loss of faith or I feel overwhelmed, is I ask for all the Buddhas and all the Bodhisattvas to help me again, remind me where the path is. It's an inner inner meditation, like clear the way, please. I'm not seeing it. You know, when I have a big decision to make or I generally am debating something, should I try that or should it? And I feel stuck or I feel lost in a mind state or there's some great suffering that's happened. That's when I take refuge. That's when I ask the enlightened ones, help me, show me, illuminate the path forward. And then I wait until it's clear. Right? That's in some way the faith that we can have. That's, that's why we're not alone in this. Right? When we don't know what to do, we remember our true nature. Oh, when we don't know what to do, we remember the Dharma, oh, the present moment, kindness. If we don't know what to do, we re- remember Sangha. Right? We go to groups. We call friends on the path. We remind ourselves. The Sangha is growing so much, too. All over is flourishing. Every month, I seem like I get an email saying, new meditation center. Right, new center here, new center here. Bonte Buddha who was at the first P1, you know, he has this center in Mississippi, is thriving in Mississippi, right? And they can't keep up with it. Our center in Oakland just is bursting at the seams, right? More people. This is a good sign, right? This is the beauty of the wheel set in motion, right? It's flowing, it's going, it's moving. So I wanted to talk about, tonight, I wanted to really share about the refuges in a different way so that you could hold them as a place of refuge in your heart. It's not an outer thing. It's not a ritual, right? It's an inner, it's setting the direction, right? We set our boats to the sun, right? And was like, oh, take refuge until I get there. Because I can trust the path. I can trust others have walked this path. It's possible. Right? We remember our true nature. The highest way that we can honor the Buddha is to become one. Right? Become one. Realize the teachings. That's kind of the offering in some way to us. Like, you can do it. And also, I like that. He said, if it wasn't possible, I wouldn't tell you to do so. Right? And also, we have to remind ourselves because so many times we get really tired. You know that feeling of being tired? <laughs> it's like a cosmic tired. Like, oh, I just, it's tired of just one thing after another tired. You know, that kind of tired. Like, one more thing happens. And we can lose momentum. 
Right. And taking refuge brings us back. It's like, okay, we have to keep walking one foot after another because really we can't stay laying down too long. You know, something in us rises up. I think it's the Buddha nature in us. It's like, hello, come on, let's go again, right? We might fall down a little bit. But there's something about taking refuge that we've pulled back up again. Like, oh, yes, it is hard. And that's part of this path that we have to reconcile is that bittersweetness. Like, oh, so challenging. And yet we keep walking. Oh, I'm so tired. That's when I call my sangha, and then they enliven me, like, come on, we can do it. Like, we walked for a while, and sometimes in those marathons, you see people holding other people's hands, right? Come on, come on, for a while, they're like, I can't. And then after a while, their hands, and they're like, okay, I can do it. They're like, they get like, they hit like a low point, right? And then people come and they push them, like, yes, we're all going toward the finish line. That's kind of how I see this. So I think I'll end my talk there. I just felt like I wanted just to share this tonight. And again, it's, it's devotional in some way. And for, for you all, you'll, you'll find your way with this teaching. You'll find your way with taking refuge in a way that means something. It's not, it doesn't, it has to mean something for you, right? It's alive for you. So just ending with, again, Nyosho Ken Rinpoche's poem, The Rest in Natural Great Peace. Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thoughts, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Rest a natural great peace. So we just sit for a moment.
Thank you. And I guess we'll do walking and then back for chanting. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.